Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's good to be back here in Charlotte again and to uh, be here, of course, for the Council of Elders meeting next week. I just want to bring you greetings, of course, from all your brethren down in Southeast Asia and Australia and New Zealand. Uh, As Mr. Ames mentioned, the population in that part of the world is probably getting on to probably half the population of the earth, uh, probably around three billion people or so. Of that, we have approximately 1,500 members in the Church of God who attend with us. So you can work out the percentages. It's uh, very small, but of course, one day we know those numbers are going to change dramatically. But uh, one of the uh, uh, most recent happenings uh, in this part of the world has been the transfer of Mr. Uh, Kinnear Penman, who's been looking after our people in New Zealand, has been transferred to the Philippines, is up in the the Manila area. Actually, today he's up in uh, Baguio City, where we keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And um, he is uh, uh, certainly getting adjusted to the different way of life, the different culture there. I think he and Mrs. Penman are beginning to enjoy it. Um, Mr. Moses has uh, been doing some traveling around India. We're trying to get God's work going in the Indian subcontinent. Uh, Hopefully we'll be able to accomplish that in the not-too-distant future and be on television over there. But we do have a a small group up in northeastern India, and uh, they seem to be uh, very dedicated and wanting to learn more and more of the truth. Uh, Mr. Moses has just visited a group up in Nepal, which is uh, in the Himalayas, Uh, in uh, northern India, between northern India and China. And uh, that seems like the gentleman there who has been reasonably uh, faithful down through time. He listened to the Tomorrow's World program or the World Tomorrow back in the 1980s and then lost track of everything and now has has rediscovered it. So we're working with him and uh, certainly they seem very, very excited to... uh, Um, come in contact with the truth again. So we'll keep in touch with them and do our best to encourage them in the difficult circumstances that they find themselves in. So we certainly appreciate all your prayers for many of our brethren in that part of the world. Life is not easy for them, and they certainly appreciate everything that we do do for them. Well, I left home last Sunday uh, to come here. I... uh, Uh, brought with me this time my daughter Bethany and my granddaughter Dana and they're up there somewhere but I hope you get to meet them. Bethany may sound like an Australian but actually she's an American. She was born in northern Kentucky in Alexandria so um, you can congratulate her afterwards and uh, uh, she's very pleased to come back to the the land of her birth and be able to uh, visit a little bit and and learn a little bit about the country where she was born. Uh, I was just talking to Mrs. League, just out in the foyer before church started, and uh, we have fond memories of Mr. and Mrs. League. They were uh, there when Bethany was born, and uh, we really appreciate the friendship that we developed with them over the time that we were able to spend together. As I said, we certainly appreciate Mr. and Mrs. League for the dedication they've had over the years and certainly appreciate Mr. League's ministry. But um, I came via London um, with Bethany and we uh, were able to uh, have a quick look. It was a sort of a nostalgia trip in some ways. I I said to Beth that uh, what I'd like to do is take her back to the old Bricketwood campus and show her where her mother and I first met and where her origins in one sense began, if I can put it that way. And it was was, uh, very nice going back there, very sad uh, to see the place. But uh, we did have also the opportunity to go down to London and uh, have a little tour of the uh, London um, uh, city itself. And it was a rather dreary, rainy, overcast, typical British day. And uh, we went, went, took one of these buses, these double-decker buses, where you can sit up top and look down. And I was quite surprised to just see how religious the British or the Londoners are. 
Um, it seemed like everywhere the bus stopped, uh, there were men and women on the footpaths or the sidewalks um, with their heads down, meditating or praying. And I thought, well, maybe praying for the weather to get better and all that sort of thing. And they were really contemplative in, the, in their approach. And I thought, why are they all doing this? Then I discovered what was happening. They actually had their cell phones with them and they were all probably texting their friends. So uh, I thought it was quite humorous to see these people with their heads bowed and their their backs to the wind and uh, playing around with their their cell phones. So I thought to myself, well, Mr. King's done a really good job over there in getting these people to be a little bit more religious. But uh, Britain has a, uh, a fascination uh, for me in many respects. My family originally come from that part of the world. And um, I did have the opportunity to go by Westminster Abbey while I was over there. And one of the earliest memories I have in, in my life, uh, I guess there's several of them, but some, some that really stand out above all others, was what happened on the 7th of February, 1952. And I was just a youngster in school. I was only seven and a half years old, but I still remember the announcement coming over the loudspeaker system at the school where I attended. And the announcement was, the king is dead. And King George VI, he had cancer. And, of course, it was the beginning of the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, who is, of course, still on the throne right now. But as a, a youngster at that time, um, just after the Second World War, you know, one of the things we had stamped into our thinking at that time was for the love of country, uh, the love of the king, and the love of God. And that was basically the... Uh, the, the, the code words that were, were taught to us even in, in, in school, to love God, king, and country. And that, that, those statements have certainly stayed with me over the years. And I think it's something that we as a people uh, certainly now have lost. Uh, the love of God is gone. There's no doubt about that. We cannot reject God fast enough in whatever country we are. The love of the king is not there. Satan has done an incredible job of saying, we don't need a monarchy. We don't need kings. You know, we can govern ourselves in a republic or a democratic type system and let's get rid of, of, of a king. Of course, we know Christ is king and Satan doesn't want the world to appreciate and understand the role and responsibility of a leader of that nature. Of course, when Christ returns um, and he says, I'm king of kings and lord of lords, people say, oh, no, we got rid of kings years back. You're out of date. Um, They won't want to accept it. Of course, we know everybody is going to do that. But, you know, one of the most moving, I think, religious ceremonies that um, the the world has been given is, is the coronation of the king and the queens of the people of Israel. I, I have a little book here, um, and, and for a title for my sermon, by the way, is What Does It Mean to Be Sanctified? Setting apart. In our marriage ceremony, we often, or we do say at the very end, as in all cases of ordination and the setting apart is by the laying out of hands, I now lay my hands on your or join your hands, and we ask God to sanctify this relationship and set this special this relationship apart. I have a little book here. It's actually the the card. It's entitled Elizabeth Crown Queen. Just picked it up in a secondhand bookshop store for two dollars, and it's the actual the entire ceremony of the coronation. I'm not going to go through the all of it, but I do want to bring out a little snippet of a section of the coronation ceremony. Uh, Certainly, God is invoked, his laws, his word, everything to do with the coronation is is not a civil ceremony. It's a religious ceremony. 
It's a re- it was a, a religious service. And um, without going, as I said, going through all of it, there's a prayer that deals with the anointing of the future monarch. And I'll just read a little bit of that prayer. It says, O Lord and Heavenly Father, the exalter of the humble and the strength of your chosen, who by anointing with oil didst of all make and consecrate kings, priests, and prophets to teach and govern your people Israel. Bless and sanctify your chosen servant, Elizabeth, who by our office and ministry is now to be anointed with this oil and consecrated queen. And then the Archbishop of Canterbury went on to anoint her hands, he anointed her breasts, he anointed her head with the holy oil, as they referred to it, and then continued on and says, by your head anointed with holy oil, as kings, priests, and prophets were anointed, and as Solomon was anointed king by Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, so be you anointed, blessed and consecrated queen over the people whom the Lord God has given you to rule and govern them. And so just as the ancient kings of Israel were consecrated and sanctified and anointed, so was Queen Elizabeth. And then she is then presented with the sword of state, which has, and of course there was the orb and there's the, 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 the rod, and, and all of these had religious significance, which I won't go through right now. But when she's given the sword of state, the archbishop says, Hear our prayer, O Lord, we beseech you, and so direct and support your servant, Queen Elizabeth, that she may not bear the sword in vain, but may use it as the minister of God for the terror and punishment of evildoers and for the protection and encouragement of those that do well through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then finally we come down, well, there's quite a number of things, but I'll come down to the actual putting on of the crown. And the archbishop says, O God, the crown of the faithful, bless we beseech you this crown and so sanctify your servant Elizabeth, to sanctify her, to set her apart, upon whose head this day you do place it for a sign of royal majesty, that she may be filled by your abundant grace and with all princely virtues through the King Eternal Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And then the archbishop takes the crown in his hands and then places it on her head and sets her apart by this incredible ceremony of crowning her with the crown of um, uh, Edward the Confessor, which of course has been in the British history for the last uh, 900 years or whatever it is. But what does this have to do with all of us? You know, we, as I said, we were taught as a young child to honour God, honour the King, and certainly love our country. Well, we have a ceremony in God's church today which probably a lot of us don't fully appreciate what it means and how God is involved in that. I believe if we understood it a little bit more or many individuals who have been part of God's church in the past had understood it, they would probably still be with us today. Sadly, many, many people have departed the faith and no longer walk in God's ways as he has called us to do. And I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6 because here we find the, some of the foundational doctrines that God has given to us. And if we can understand these and understand this particular doctrine that's mentioned here, because the Apostle Paul is telling us we need to go on to perfection. And we cannot go on to perfection, of course, unless we understand what are the basis and what what they mean. And so in chapter 6 of Hebrews and verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on to perfection, 
Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. And I think we all understand that. You know, to be a part of God's church, to be called out of this world, there's changes that we have to make in our life. We realize we've been going the wrong way. We have been deceived by the God of this world. And we needed to repent. And that's what the Apostle Peter said on the day of Pentecost, if we wanted to receive God's Holy Spirit. And then it goes on to talk about faith towards God. And we have studied up on faith, and we learn a little bit about that. And then in verse 2 it says, of the doctrine of baptisms. So we know that we need to go on and be baptized. And we understand the baptism is going into the watery grave, and our past life and our sins are being totally buried and they're put in the past and we're being washed in those that the waters of baptism in that sense and then it goes on to say and of the laying on of hands and this is a ceremony yes we we get baptized and we look forward to that people people want to, I want to be baptized uh, but the laying on of hands is something that we really need to be looking forward to. Baptism represents your funeral. But the laying of hands is the actual giving of life, the giving of God's Holy Spirit. And so the doctrine of baptisms and the laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead, and we look forward to that. We look forward to seeing all of God's servants come up in that first resurrection and those that have been with us even in the present era of God's church, and then, of course, of eternal judgments. And we learn about that during the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day and God's plan ultimately for all mankind. But what does laying out of hands really mean? How is it significant to us? Is it just a casual ritual that we go through at baptism, maybe at, or not maybe, but at times of ordination. When we're sick, we have hands laid on us. And then, of course, there are times when uh, special um, uh, healings were done, like the anointed cloths that we send out, as the book of Acts talks about them as being special miracles, and those cloths uh, have hands laid on them. But what does the laying on of hands really mean? And how does it affect our life now? How does it affect our attitude towards God and his work and his church? And, of course, our eternal life in God's family. Over here at Acts chapter 19, first of all, let's have a look at a a couple of verses here that just show us the importance of the laying on of hands. I, I use these as a sort of a springboard or a foundation to show how God does things. And in Acts 19, we have, or actually in the end of Acts 18, we see here an example of a man by the name of Apollos who was taken by uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, Apollos was very eloquent in his delivery of uh, speaking about God's way of life. But he didn't understand about the Holy Spirit. He didn't understand about faith in Christ. He knew certain aspects of it. And yet when we come to chapter 19, the Apostle Paul comes across a group of disciples that possibly were um, raised up by Apollos at some stage. It's very possible that some of these people may have even heard John the Baptist preach much earlier on. And they had been very dedicated, very faithful to the way of life that they had been instructed in. You notice here in verse 1 of Acts 19. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and found certain disciples. And he said to them, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? He looked at these people. He'd never realized there was a group of church members there. Uh, From all accounts, they appeared that they were very solid in the faith, Uh, they were keeping the Passover and the holy days, they weren't keeping Christmas and Easter, they weren't eating unclean foods, they looked like they were really genuine converted members of the church of God. And he said, um, 
uh, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said to him, we have not so much as even heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. What are you talking about, Paul? was really their response. And he said to them, so who baptized you? And they said, well, we were baptized unto, to John's baptism. And Paul said, John truly baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And so they were able to repent. They were able to turn from their wrong ways. It's interesting to read Matthew 3 and Matthew 4 when it talks about John the Baptist came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and repentance. And then in chapter 4 of Matthew, it says Christ came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and repentance. It uses the same words to show that John's message and Christ's message were identical. But we know there had to be an added element to that later. And so here these people, they had repented, but they didn't understand about being begotten by God's Holy Spirit. And it took the laying on of hands by the Apostle Paul for these people to actually receive that gift. And so God is showing us here that he's working through human instruments. I mean, those people had repented. God could have just given them the Holy Spirit, but that's not how he was going to do it. He wanted those individuals to acknowledge that there was a ministry. There was a way, as the Apostle Paul explained to those on the day of Pentecost, that they should repent and be baptized so they can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so here we find that just because we have been baptized, I've run across people that feel they have genuinely received God's Spirit. Uh, They wanted to make changes in their lives, and yet they were still keeping Christmas and Easter and going to some evangelical or, or Pentecostal church and still felt that, yes, they had God's Holy Spirit. Well, these people here, they had repented. And yet we find the Apostle Paul baptizes them again and lays hands on them so they can receive the Holy Spirit. So the laying on of hands is very, very vital and important. And it's something that we must not just take for granted and and realize that or think that it's not of any significance whatsoever. As I was saying there, it's very important for us to understand the role of the ministry, especially in the laying on of hands when it comes to the uh, receiving of God's Holy Spirit. But there's another aspect of this. I don't want to take you back to Acts 6 just yet. We'll go back over to Genesis 48. Genesis chapter 48. And this is one of the examples of the laying on of hands I know we're all familiar with. And it deals with the blessing of Ephraim Manasseh and uh, the two sons of Joseph. I'm not Exodus, I'm sorry. Genesis, we'll get it right yet. Genesis chapter 48 and beginning here in verse uh, 14. Just to rehearse the uh, story here a little bit. Uh, in verse, uh, starting in verse 13, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim and Manasseh, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and he brought them near to him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly or knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. In verse 15, and he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abram and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long till this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads and let my name be named on them and the name of my fathers Abram and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now this was just a a physical thing that a father was doing or a grandfather was doing for his grandkids. And yet, brethren, how important was this? What did God think about it? I mean, the whole history of the world in the last couple of hundred years depended on what was happening right here. God was in this. The laying on of hands, it may be a physical thing by a grandfather onto his grandchildren. 
It may do with physical nations and blessings, but God looks upon this ceremony as something vitally important, something he is involved in. And he has fulfilled that blessing, that authority that was placed on the head of those two boys until we see today the incredible impact that that laying out of hands has had on the history of our world, even in our day and age. And so this is just not something that we should just take, for light, take lightly and think, oh, this is just a little ceremony that go through. I need to be anointed. Um, will you please pray for me and anoint me with oil and lay hands on me? I need to be baptized, but I know I've got to have hands laid on afterwards. No, this is something that God looks upon and takes very seriously. And as we go on, we'll begin to understand how serious it really is. In Numbers chapter 8 and verse 6, in Numbers chapter 8 and verse 6, this is, has to do with the Levites, but in many respects it has to do with you and all of us sitting here today. Because God, what God did with these Levites here, back in with ancient Israel as they came out of Egypt and headed towards the promised land, is really a type of what has happened in our lives. We know that God claimed all the firstborn when Egypt was devastated and the firstborn of Israel was saved alive. God said they're mine, but then he took the tribe of Levi and said, I'll substitute them for all the firstborn. And so here we read in verse 5 of Numbers chapter 8, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them. Now this is what God does with us. He takes us out of this world, just like Israel had been brought out of Egypt. And before they could actually serve God, these Levites here, they need to be cleaned up. And that's the same with us before we can come into God's presence, before we can serve God. The same has to happen to us. Take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them, and thus shall you, uh, you do unto, unto them to cleanse them, sprinkle them, uh, sprinkle water of purifying upon them, let them shave all their flesh, and let them wash their clothes, and so make themselves clean. And we read enough verses in the New Testament that tell us that we have to be clean. We need to have ourselves washed, either in the washing of water by the word, or at least washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. In verse 10, And you shall bring the Levites before the Lord, and the children of Israel shall put their hands on the Levites. Here we find there's a laying out of hands of these people. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord for an offering of the children of Israel that they may execute the service of the Lord. God wanted them as the substitute firstborn to serve him. And it was done by the laying on of hands. And I hope that when we have hands laid on us, brethren, we just don't think, oh, it's just so I can receive God's Holy Spirit. You know, there's a responsibility that goes along with the laying on of hands. You know, our job is also to execute the service of the Lord. We are called into his body. We're called into his work. We're not just called into God's or the church of God in the end time just so we can receive salvation. You know, God has, has left the vast majority of mankind until the last great day. But we have as the firstborn, and remember Christ is the first of the first fruits. We're going to be part of the first resurrection. And here we find that we have a, an awesome responsibility to be involved in God's work. In verse 13, And you shall set the Levites before Aaron and before his sons and offer them for an offering to the Lord. Thus shall you separate the Levites from among the children of Israel. The Levites shall be mine. So you notice they were to be separate. 
What do we read in the New Testament, both in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, read in Revelation chapter 18? He says, come out of her, my people, and be separate. God doesn't want us to be a part of this world. He wants us to be clean. In fact, let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and just read a few verses here to show how we have been separated by the laying out of hands and what God expects from us as his children, as members of the body of Christ. He says in verse 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or second, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, he says, Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part is he that believes with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You see, brethren, we cannot be in this world and be in the church of God at the same time. Now, we can be in the world, but not of the world, is what Paul is saying here, and as Christ expressed it in John 17. And he goes on to say, For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate. That's what he was asking the Levites to do. They had a responsibility. They were to serve God as a special people, as a priestly tribe. But when you get down to it, originally God wanted the entire people of Israel to be separate from the world. He called them out of Egypt to be kings, a nation of kings and priests, to serve God and to show the world how to worship the true God. Of course, they failed in that. We know the Levites have failed in the responsibility God gave them. But I hope, brethren, that we do not fail in the responsibility God has given to us by laying on of hands and separating and sanctifying us for a special use and purpose. In verse 14, again, he says, Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the children of Israel. This is in Numbers 8. I'm reading back there again. And after that shall the Levites go in and do the service of the tabernacle of the congregation and you shall cleanse them and offer them for an offering what does the apostle paul tell us in romans 12 i don't have time to actually turn to all these scriptures but he says we are to be living sacrifices we are to offer ourselves to god in fact maybe we should turn to romans chapter 12 and read the introductory verses in this chapter he says in verse 1 i beseech you brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, as an offering. Just like the Levites were to be offered to do a job, we too, he says here through the Apostle Paul, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, a living offering, that we dedicate ourselves to God, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And I think if we understood that, and many of our let's say separated brethren and others who are no longer working, walking with us, if they had understood what it meant to have hands laid on them, that they were set apart for a special purpose, not for their, their own benefit, but for the benefit of God's work, you know, they, rather than getting lifted up with pride and arrogancy and everything else and going a different direction, they would still be offering themselves as a sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable or expected service. In verse 2 he says, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And that's an ongoing thing. Our minds continually need to be renewed. Satan is always out there bombarding us with his thoughts and his attitudes. And we have to ask God to transform our minds by the renewing of your minds that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so just like Levi, the whole tribe of Levi was separated and they were cleansed, certainly we need to realize by the laying on of hands, we also have to come out of this world and be separated and be cleansed by the washing of water of the word, as it tells us in Ephesians chapter 5. But that laying out of hands symbolizes something else that also is important. Here in Acts 8, we know Stephen 
Well, the, the deacons had been ordained in Acts chapter 6 for a responsibility to serve the, especially the widows in the church at that time. And chapter 7 in Acts, we read how Stephen is uh, martyred. And then in Acts chapter 8, we find how there is a scattering of God's people. And Philip, one of the deacons who later on became an evangelist, goes down or is traveling through Samaria. And as he travels through there, he begins to talk about God's way of life, whether that was a deliberate um, evangelizing tour that he was on. I don't know. I don't think so. I think it was him just coming through some of these cities and engaging in conversation. And God begins to use him. And it says in verse 6 of Acts chapter 8, the people with one accord gave heed to those things which Philip spoke, hearing and then seeing the miracles which he did. And here he had, even though he was, it appears that he was only a deacon at this time, he was able to preach about the truth. It says there in verse 7, For unclean spirits crying with loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them, and many had taken, who were taken with palsies and, and uh, others who were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. And so Philip has been given a certain authority to do this. He had hands laid on him when he was baptized. When he was ordained a deacon, he had hands laid on him. And it says there that many came to understand the truth that he was expressing in teaching. In verse, um, um, uh, well, verse, without going through all of that, they, we know that many of them, as it says, were baptized, but um, they did not receive the Holy Spirit. For some reason, Stephen, or I should say Philip, did not feel he had the authority to lay hands on them. Now, he knew about the laying on of hands. There's no question about that. As I mentioned, he would have had hands laid on him when he was baptized. He would have had, and he did. In fact, you can read it in Acts chapter 6. It says, "Whom in verse 6, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, and they ordained them to the responsibility of serving the church as deacons. So he knew about it, and yet for some reason, even though he baptized these people, it seems he felt he didn't have the authority to actually ask God to give them the Holy Spirit. And so it says here in verse 14, now when the apostles, this is Acts chapter 8 and verse 14, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they may receive the Holy Spirit. Once again, we see, without the laying on of hands, the gift of the Holy Spirit is just not given. That's how important it is. And just like Ephraim Manasseh, who had hands laid them on them by their grandfather, and they received the birthright, you know, the right to inherit the promises that God had given to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob himself. You know, when we have hands laid on us by the ministry, we are given the Holy Spirit, the down payment of eternal life. We are given the right of birth in that sense, the right to be born into the family of God, into the kingdom of God. And so reading again here in verse 16, uh, verse 15, and when they were come down, they prayed for him, them that the Holy Spirit, they may receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then laid they their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of hands, and we know Simon the magician who lived in Samaria there, he certainly had a large following and he probably felt threatened that many of his followers were defecting. He wanted to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, he wasn't prepared to repent. He wanted the gift, but he wanted to buy it with money, as it says here. He offered them money. Here's some money. Give me this. Give me this wonderful blessing. 
God's Spirit is not to be bought and sold. And Peter then says to him in verse 19, saying, Give me this power that on whomsoever I lay my hands, he may receive the Holy Spirit. See, he wanted that power. You know, this power in the laying on of hands. It is very significant. But he wasn't prepared to do something that was so vitally important. And that was he was not prepared to submit himself really to God's law, to the authority that was in the church. He wasn't prepared to submit himself to Peter and John in this case. He wanted to keep his way of life, but he also wanted to have his cake and eat it too, so to speak. But in verse 20, but Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you have thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. You know, if your heart's not right, then the laying on of hands is not going to do anybody any good. We have to have the right attitude. And I know I've, I've baptized people, unfortunately, that I've asked them, have you repented of your sins? Yes. And all the while they haven't. Uh, they're still committing adultery or they're still, you know, they've said they've uh, stopped smoking and they haven't. Uh, they're on some other addiction or whatever. Uh, they'd be better off to say, look, I'm still trying to overcome it. You know, I'm asking God to have mercy on me rather than just lying about it. But there is power there. And he says to verse 22, Repent therefore this day of your wickedness and pray that God perhaps through the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And answered Simon and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken will come upon me. Well, Simon wasn't prepared to change. And brethren, for us to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for us to have hands laid on us, our attitude better be right. What I'm saying here and what the Scriptures is telling us here is that if we want to receive the blessing of God's Holy Spirit, the blessing of the promise of eternal life, of this mortality being changed to immortality at the resurrection, then we better be prepared to have the right heart and attitude towards Christ himself, towards the authority that is in God's church, to come under God's authority. That's what it means. Simon wasn't prepared to put himself under the government of the church. Now, today the word government has a, a bad connotation in the minds of a lot of people. Oh, you practice church government. Well, we better understand it because God governs the whole universe and he governs through Jesus Christ himself. And we better accept that. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 8, notice here how Christ is the head of the church. And as I said before, if many people had understood the role and responsibility and how God works in his church today, we would still have a lot of people with us involved in, in, in doing the work of God. Over here in, in um, Colossians chapter 1 and in verse 8, scripture where we should all be familiar with, and, he, and talking about Christ, as Paul is saying here, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. You see, the laying on of hands is us coming under the government of Jesus Christ. And when we think about the head, you know, usually when your brain thinks about something, it wants to do something, it wants to, let's say it's hungry, your, your body is hungry, it sends a message to the brain, the brain says, I need to get food. And you know the food is in the refrigerator or the cupboard and you walk over there and suddenly the hand says, no, I'm not going to open the door. No, I refuse to feed that mouth there. No, it doesn't work that way. Sometimes we wish it would, <laughs> but it doesn't work that way. 
The mind is in control. The head is in control. The head opens through the hand. Open the, the hand is always obedient. Even if it does do the wrong thing sometimes, it's, it's subject to the brain, subject to the head. And this is what God is trying to teach us here. That when we have hands laid on us, we come under God's hands. We come under his authority. We don't rebel against him. We do what he says. And unfortunately, too many people have come into God's church over the years and they they haven't yielded to the authority that God has put in his church. I want to to quote or read to you two scriptures. First one is in Matthew chapter 10. And this is so very, very vital. Christ tells us this here and then later on it's recorded for us back over in the book of Luke. But in Matthew chapter 10 and in verse 40, Christ has sent his disciples out. And I I point out even here in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 10, it says, when he called unto him his 12 disciples. Now, they weren't apostles right now. They were just disciples. He called them to teach them, to train them. But the interesting thing is, it's not a position or a responsibility that an individual just takes to themselves. You know, this was something, it says there, Christ gave them power. You know, that authority has to be given. And unfortunately, many times individuals in God's church have not acknowledged where the authority is. They have taken power to themselves. I had a couple of individuals in one of the church areas that I had a responsibility over. One man was a deacon, the other wasn't. He wanted to be a deacon, or actually he wanted to be a prophet. And um, both of them got together with a couple of individuals and they actually ordained one another. You know, one man put his head on the hands of the other and the other put his hands on the other guy and they ordained each other. Well, they gave themselves authority. That didn't come from God, it didn't come through his church, it didn't come through his ministry. And here we see, of course, Christ was the one who gave them the power and gave them the authority to go out and preach and teach and heal and, and so forth. But as we come down to the end of this chapter, and we come to verse 40, Christ says something very startling here about the responsibility that he has given to individuals. He says, he that receives you receives me. He that receives me receives him that sent me. There is a chain of government. There's a chain of authority. You know, God doesn't, Christ doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that authority that is in God's church is something that we need to learn to respect. You know, I talked about the attitude when I was a boy being taught about God, king, and country. You know, there was a loyalty among the subjects of the king that we would go out and we would defend his country. We would fight. I was only, I was not, I was born at the end of the Second World War, so I don't remember anything about it. But from my dad and my granddad, I remember them talking about it. Mr. King is over there and I know his, even though we lived 10,000 miles away from the mother country, there was a fervent loyalty towards the, 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 the leadership. There was a respect towards the monarchy that is just not there anymore. It's gone. And men would just give themselves to die for their country and to protect the king, to have him survive. And it was a beautiful attitude to see. And over here in Luke chapter 10, just uh, before I go on any further here in Luke chapter 10, Christ reiterates this through Luke and we are reminded once again he puts it in a slightly different terminology but it's the exactly the same thing he said that he that hears you hears me and he that despises you despises me and he that despises me despises him that sent me God today still works through human beings. Christ's apostles were just fishermen. They were just average, you know, men 
off the street, so to speak. They weren't the highly educated, but Christ had chosen them for a job and a purpose. And he said, if they reject you, they reject me because I have sent you, I have ordained you to do this, take out, carry on this responsibility. And if you reject that, they're not only rejecting, they're not only rejecting you, they're rejecting the authority that I have given you and then in turn rejecting my Father in heaven. And sadly, so many have done that today, brethren. They haven't proved where God's work is. They haven't proved whom God is working through. I want to take you back very quickly to 1 Samuel and chapter 26. It's just a a vital principle here that we need to learn from King David, the first king on the throne. God had already set, set up a king. A man had already been chosen, been anointed by Samuel, Uh, he didn't do a good job. He tried to exalt himself rather than protect the country and protect God's way. In fact, it says there that the Spirit of God actually left him and God allowed a satanic spirit to come in and take over his life. But even though King David, he was not king at this stage, even though he had been anointed, by Samuel, to be the future king. There was an attitude that he displayed here that we have lost today, and society has infiltrated our thinking to disrespect the authority that God has even established in his church. But King David here set us a really, really fine example And he says in verse 9 of 1 Samuel chapter 26, when he had the opportunity to destroy Saul, who at times became possessed, who tried to, was attempting to take his life, to take David's life. And David was in a position where he could have destroyed Saul. And in verse 9 of 1 Samuel 26, he says, And David said to Abishai, Destroy him not. For who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And I think about over the years and the history of God's church, and I've had a, my history in God's church only goes back to 1961, which puts me about 52 years now, a bit more than that. But every time I have seen people rise up against the leadership in God's church, people have rose up against Mr. Armstrong, they've come to nothing. And God continued to work through his leadership. And I've seen people rise up against the leadership in God's work today. And they have come to nothing and will continue to come to nothing. And that's why we need to learn the lessons from the scriptures here. And David says, here is, here is this king. He was, he was God's anointed. But David said, look, it's not for me to do anything about it. It's not my responsibility to try and destroy this man. That's God's job. And too many people have tried to do the job for God. And of course, it wasn't God's will anyway. But he says, destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. But I pray you, take you now the spear that is in his bolster and the cruise of water and let us go. You know, in other words, what we're saying here, you know, we have in the British Empire, at least, or the British Commonwealth, what's left of it, a a royal monarch on the throne. You know, it's not our job to destroy that, and yet there are people out there who are trying to get rid of the monarchy. They don't understand, of course. It's very sad to see that. But there's an attitude that then spills over against the leadership of any country. The Apostle Paul said, we need to be praying for the king. You know, as he says in 1 Timothy. And that we may have, the, the work of God may have free course and so forth. It's not our job to take out this world at this time. 
That's not our responsibility. And all power, of course, is given from God, as you read in Romans chapter 13. Further on in this chapter and down in verse 23, once again we read, The Lord rendered to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. And that's the attitude that we need to have towards God's servants. You know, they may be human beings, but if they've been appointed by God, then we better make sure that we have the honor and respect that is there. Because Christ said, if, they don't, if you don't, they don't receive you, they don't receive me, and they don't receive or honor my Father who sent me. So that authority is very, very important, brethren. We need to always keep that in mind that we need to come under that authority that is given. I might just give you a personal example. This is before I was married. I was very interested in a certain lady. And I had sought some counsel from one of God's or a couple of God's ministers. The response came back that said, forget it. We don't want you to matched up. (laughs) And I went to the young lady I was interested in and I said, um, you know, God's servants have said that it's not a good idea for us to go any further with our relationship. And I remember this example here in uh, 1 Samuel about David. I remembered what Christ said over there in various places and the understanding of the authority and government in God's church. And I said, well, we're going to do exactly what we're told. You know, God is the one who knows best. He's, you know, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has all power. And so I said to this young lady, I said, you know, as far as we're concerned, we need to call it quits, come to an end. I'll tell you, that was a very, very distressing emotional time. I was in my final year of Ambassador College, and uh, the year was 1970. And so we, we called off our relationship. Now, I'd been interested in her for several years. She didn't know that. Um, but... Uh, you know, to get through those, those emotional heartstrings uh, is a very difficult thing. But, you know, I believe that the evangelist at the time that I was counseling with was giving me some advice that I needed to follow. And I did, and about six or eight weeks later, I think we got through, both of us got through the, the emotional attachment that we'd had and we'd set our goals on different directions. The young lady was applied to um, be a hostess on Mr. Armstrong's plane, which she was pretty much assured of getting at the time. Um, I had no idea where, what direction my life was going to go in. Anyway, I did have to go back and I and, uh, was uh, involved in some other counselling matters. And as I spoke to uh, the gentleman, he said to me, how are you and Sonny getting on? Now, as many of you know, Sonny's my wife. And I said, well, look, we're, we're, we're still good friends, but you know, we've done what you've told us and we've you know, just called it quits and, and she's gone her way, I'm going mine. Anyway, he said, uh, well, uh, hang on a second, just wait here a few minutes. And he disappeared for about 10 minutes and came back and landed me with a bombshell. He said, how, new, how do you think Sonny would like living in Sydney? And it's an interesting thing. I'll tell you that. I've cut a long story short, I'll tell you that. But... In that year, in 1970, or I should say up until that year in 1970, every graduate 
of Ambassador College, in Brickett Wood at least, was employed in the work. They were guaranteed a job. In 1970, it was the first year that they could not guarantee everybody getting a job in God's work. And it so happened that when I went in there and I said, well, yes, we've broken it off, we've you know, separated, we've gone our separate ways, that I was the first one in my graduating class to actually be offered a job in the work of God. And I considered that an incredible blessing. I know an interesting thing. Others, as far as I know, were asked to do similar sort of things. And I look upon that as a test. But I was prepared to listen to the advice of the evangelists at the time and to follow through on that. You know, and I certainly believe in my heart you know, that if you do and respect the counsel that is given, and, and it was not counsel to break God's law. Any minister that gives any counsel to transgress God's law, that's a different matter. But I know that God works through his ministry and through his leadership. And I know he's greater than all of us. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to take that advice, to listen to the counsel, even though it may be difficult to put it into practice. As we read, as Christ said, if they hear you, they hear me, and they hear my Father who sent me. Or if they despise you or despise your word, they actually despise me. And so, brethren, when we actually have hands laid on us, we're saying to God through this, I don't want to call it a ritual, but symbolic of putting ourselves under God's authority and government. Turn over here to 1 Peter chapter 5, because this is the advice that God gives us through the Apostle Peter, who undoubtedly was one of the leading apostles in God's church in the first century, and he's explaining to other elders in the church the relationship that we need to have with one another, the relationship that we need to have with the ministry, with the membership, with Christ. And one of the responsibilities is that put on the ministry, as it says here in verse 2 of 1 Peter 5, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, not like Simon Magus. You know, the ministry is not a job where you expect to get rich and make a fortune. It's a responsibility where you become a living sacrifice. And that's what we need to do, even as members in the church, when we think about God's kingdom. It's not a matter of how great we can become in this world. It's a matter of how much we can give ourselves to God in service to him. In verse 3, neither being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory. You know, that crown, just like the queen was crowned, that crown is the ultimate Laying on of hands. Now, the laying on of hands is symbolic of the authority. But then he talks about here of receiving the crown of glory that fades not away. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yes, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. The laying on of hands, brethren, means we come under the authority of God's government. We don't tell God's government how... It's to operate. We come under God and he tells us how things are going to happen. For God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And then he says, humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God. When we have hands laid on us, brethren, it's symbolic of the humility that we need to display as we come, become babes in God's work. But we don't know it all. The world teaches us lots of things. But when we come into the truth, we come in being very ignorant. And that's why we have to be humble so we can learn. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And so what an incredible blessing it is, brethren, to really understand what the laying on of hands is all about. I haven't covered lots of aspects of it, some of the special gifts 
that God gives, but primarily, if we can understand that we come under the authority of God's hand, that we come under the authority of Jesus Christ, that we come under the authority that those that Christ has ordained. And if we can be prepared to be taught by them and listen to them, then God is going to bless us and he is the one that's going to exalt us. As I said in the beginning, there is the love of God, king and country. And if we can get it into perspective, it's the same for us. It's the love of God the Father, it's the love for Christ the King, and it's the love for the kingdom of God that must come first in our life. So let us remember those lessons and let's thank God that we can come under his hands, the mighty hands of God himself.